Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschemann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about Libya. Ten years ago, Libya saw an uprising turned violent, a NATO intervention, and the end of Muammar Gaddafi's 40-plus-year rule. But then, how did the country go from supposed Arab Spring success story to failing state? And after multiple civil wars, can Libya now turn the page with its newly approved unity government? That's why I called Libya expert Brian McQuinn, Assistant Professor of International Studies at the University of Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. His research focuses on civil wars, armed groups, and peacebuilding. He also has extensive field experience as an advisor for the United Nations and the International Committee of the Red Cross. Brian and I discuss the origins of the Libyan uprisings, the who's who of the ensuing conflict, whether the 2011 air campaign was a model intervention or a model of failure, what it was like to live among rebels in Misrata, and finally, the many ifs deciding the fate of the Libyan peace process. Now, I'm excited to welcome Brian McQuinn as our March guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Brian. Good morning. How are you? Guten Morgen. <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Well, there's a phrase I've been using recently called COVID good. I asked people, are you COVID good? And I think that's a good way of framing it because it's all <laughs> relative, right? We get to Libya in a moment. But first, they say Saskatchewan is Canada's best kept secret. I was hoping you could let us in on that secret. It's basically a million people in the size of a country of France. Um, so just imagine like sort of an outer suburb of Paris that you could spread across all of France and you have an idea of where we live. There are a lot of iconic landscapes, and it is one of the most beautiful places that you can visit. It is, in the summer, a pretty spectacular place because there's no bugs. And if you love lakes, if you love all of the water sports of the world, then this is a place to come. Or if you just don't like other people, this is a place you can come because you've got lots of space. <laughs> you know, this is the Berlin security beat. So I got to ask you, what song best describes the current state of the world? So I had two. I had a song and then an album, if that's okay. There is an interesting American artist who actually grew up Muslim, which is why it's kind of linked to our talk today, called Ruella. She's got a song called New World. I think that's kind of where we are, is that there's sort of a new world now that we're walking into. And I think a lot of people who weren't aware that we lived in 70 years of prosperity and peace without a lot of worries and a lot of reason for government have found out that there's actually a lot of reason why we need to work together and rely on government and that actually we have it pretty good. And the other one is the U2's Joshua Tree, which I don't know why, but I've been listening to it recently and both of them. Um, and now they're complete opposite. One is like a hip hop dance, like proper Berlin music. And then the other one is like terrible old man music, which is more me. And I'm kind of a contradiction <laughs> that way. But Joshua Tree, you've got like uh, where the streets have no name and running to stand still and still haven't found what I'm looking for. All these kind of longingness that I think the pandemic does bring out in us a little bit. Let's see if we can find what we're looking for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 2021 marks 10 years of what Libyan affairs expert Tarek Megarisi calls Libya's global civil war. Can you take us back to the beginning? What happened in the spring of 2011? 
So Libya is probably one of the conflicts for which we have the worst reporting and some of the worst analysis and a lot of simplified ideas that I think often miss and obfuscate a lot of what actually is going on. So there's been multiple wars and to think of it as one, I think is a bit of a mistake and conflates too much. So 2011, you had a moment in time and it's important that we take a step back and look at what's happening when the rest of the world beyond even the Arab Spring. But you had an Obama administration who was relatively new. They had really key characters like Samantha Powers, who had watched what happened in Bosnia, watched what happened in Rwanda, and didn't want to have a similar massacre happen on their watch. And so when their spring began and when we saw the uh, protests in Libya begin, there was a push by Gaddafi to send hundreds of vehicles to Benghazi to put down the protests. And it's a moment that you can look at from multiple perspectives. There are some very cynical writers. There are some very overly optimistic writers on this to say that this was going to be a massacre. No, it wasn't going to be a massacre. But the international world decided in that moment to prevent Gaddafi from doing what he did. Maybe back up and talk a little bit about what Libya looked like at the beginning of 2011. You mentioned Muammar Gaddafi, but maybe you can say a few words about the system. Basically, you had a governance system built around one person. There really was an absence of government in any sense. And that was part of the philosophy of his government, was the people's government. Um, but what that practically meant was that there really was no government. There was no real military, except for the security brigades that he kept around him, which were run by his sons and close allies. Because all of the money came from one industry, in this case, oil, it was able to be funneled through him and then into the country. And so he had a complete hold on every aspect of the country. Because it's such a small country, I mean, you have six million people and that much money, you can control and monitor everyone basically in real time. And so I'll tell you one quick story of a friend of mine who car broke down outside of a particular base that they had in downtown Benghazi. And he literally thought he was going to be killed because they might misinterpret that as an attack. This was not even during 2011. This was just a couple of years before that. Anytime anyone drove by this base, they were terrified. The extent to which everyone was scared and reporting on each other. You kind of think of East Germany during Soviet time, that sense of like, you don't know whether to trust your neighbors, that kind of real sense of totalitarian state. That's what they lived every day. All right. And how did the uprisings develop? So you actually didn't have a uprising. You had multiple uprisings. For almost every medium-sized city and larger, the people who were at least initially protesting, but then fighting, did so for their own reasons in coalitions that were unique to that city and its surrounding area. And so you can actually think of Libya as having had eight or nine or 12 different uprisings that happened, but were done simultaneously. All Now, right. to the outside world, you had the NTC or the National Transitional Council, which were these incredibly gifted diplomats facing outwards because they realized that the world, in order to support them, needed to see this as one uprising. And so they formed the NTC and interacted with France and America and pretended that this whole thing was one uprising. But in actual fact, they didn't control any parts of it. They were just the sort of front office, if you'd like, of this and, and did a very good job because they realized that without a coherent leadership, they wouldn't get the international support, what you saw in Syria. That is interesting. You were there. 
As a researcher, you did nine months of fieldwork, so-called ethnographic studies, with armed groups fighting in the 2011 uprising in Libya. Can you take us through the process? Like, how does it work? What are the steps from the library to Libya and back again? From the library to Libya to back again. I like that. It just requires a little bit of crazy, I think, is probably to start off with is important. I had had a long career working for the UN and working in conflict zones, so I was not a typical student in that sense, um, and so came with a set of relationships and skills that allowed me to both assess whether it was safe to go and then to have the relationships through the UN who was going across the border all the time to be able to get a ride with them informally. So when I saw the Libyan conflict start up, the access that journalists had to the front lines was unprecedented. I mean, they were literally in the cars with the rebels going to the front lines. And so I went in May, so just two months into it, to basically see, could I get in? Was it safe? And could I get permission from anyone in Libya on the insurgent side to come and do research? And so through my contacts at the UN, I was able to get into Benghazi. And within 48 hours, I met with the number two NTC leader. And they, he said, of course, you can come and do research here. So what happened then? Well, in my excitedness, I called my supervisor on a sat phone that I had. And I was like, I've gotten permission. And I had forgotten. I hadn't actually told him that I had gone. I wanted to protect him from getting into any trouble if anything happened. And he said, where are you? I'm like, I'm in Benghazi. He said, you're where? Um, and then the, the satellite connection broke. And he unfortunately turned to his mother, who he was with at the time, and said, I think my student just got killed. Um, oh, boy. And so, <laughs> and so I ended up in Misrata, um, a city that at the time was surrounded by Gaddafi forces. And I was able to observe and study 236 separate armed groups in this one city of 300,000 people surrounded by Gaddafi forces. So it was this incredible laboratory cut off in some ways from, from much of the rest of the world. How did these groups evolve and change as the war went on? And what does that tell us about the inception of a insurgency, but also about how relationships with communities work, how sort of cooperation works, and how decentralized insurgencies. So instead of insurgencies made up of one or two groups, but how do insurgencies made up of hundreds of groups organize and fight? So what are the strengths and weaknesses of this type of research? There's probably more weaknesses, I suppose, than strengths. But I mean, the advantages of this kind of research are obviously that you're there. And so you get a sense of what people are doing and why they're doing it. So I think that's critical to understanding it because you develop these relationships with individual fighters, individual leaders beyond what you would do in an interview, right? You have tea with them, you play pool with them, you meet their families. And so you get past the facade of insurgency and you understand what their actual fears are. And so I think that's important to understanding their real motivations than just what you are told when you're interviewed. And you have your six questions that you ask every insurgent or every leader. You actually, you know, you spend hundreds of hours with people. The disadvantages of the ethnographic fieldwork is you develop one perspective. In this case, in a very Misratan experience, because of the war going on, you couldn't travel around. And so I am always very conscious that I have a very Misratan bias in how I see Libya. Let's talk about the intervention. Ten years ago, France, Great Britain, and the United States, along with allies, enforced a UN-mandated no-fly zone over Libya with the declared objective of protecting civilians from the forces of Muammar Gaddafi, and shortly after, NATO took over. Um, Ivo Dalder, who was then U.S. permanent representative to NATO, and James Stavridis, then Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, hailed Libya as the right way to run an intervention, a model intervention even. 
But by contrast, Professor Alan Cooperman of the University of Austin, Texas, calls the intervention a debacle, a model of failure. What's your assessment? Um, neither one of them is right. I think that this constant need that analysts have, and in this case, even NATO generals to justify themselves, is often the problem. Is it good? Is it bad? And I think that one of the, the main problems with that analytical approach is this idea that history only has one way of unfolding. Someone has a heart attack, you know, do CPR while the ambulance is arriving. You have probably about a 60% chance of that actually working. In so doing, you're breaking ribs, and it's not a very positive thing you're doing to the person, but you're keeping them alive, but only 60% of the time. So does that mean that the time that it works, it was fantastic and it was great, and then the time it doesn't work, it was a debacle and you shouldn't have done it? The answer to both questions is no, that there was an inherent risk to this. I think that um, basically, was it justified in the sense that there was going to be mass violence and that Gaddafi was probably going to kill a lot of people and crack down in the most uh, violent of ways? I think the answer to that was unequivocally yes. The real failure was not the actual intervention because that actually went relatively well. You had a insurgency that was supported by NATO at some level, fought for a number of months. Quite a few people were killed, but it wasn't Syria. It didn't go on for 10 years. But then where the failure was, was that as soon as the U.S. ambassador was killed, all Western embassies, all Western officials pulled out. And this is where the Obama administration, this is their failure, is they intervened, I think, correctly and, and in at the right moment. But then they, they just pulled out. And so to intervene in a country, I think by definition means you need to commit to it in a substantial way. And still in 2012, Libyans held national elections and observers hailed the, and I quote, unexpected smoothness of Libya's political transition. Libya was called one of the most successful countries to emerge from the uprisings. So what happened? This is the rub of it. I mean, uh, when we wrote and co-edited the book on Libya, uh, Libyan Revolution and its Aftermath, um, Ian Martin, who was the head of the UN at the time, put a chapter in. And when he first wrote it, it was basically just as this was ending. And the, it's hard to explain the euphoria of the country in this moment. I think those judgments were because that's how the Libyans felt about it. They had never you know, participated in elections. And it was just extraordinary crowning moment of all the sacrifice that had been made. But there was also a naivete to it. Um, and I think that's where things became a little bit more complicated. Maybe we can go through some of the factors that led to the conflict becoming protracted. So basically, there are three factors for why it has become protracted. One is this proliferation of armed groups that we've seen, which is an advantage during an insurgency, but not an advantage for the peace. And the way in which that was handled was to basically just put them all on government salaries, which meant that they just all stayed. <laughs> and so, um, and there hasn't been any major, what's called DDR, you know, demobilization strategies or transitioning them into army. None of that was really ever done. So that's one. Two is the inherent factionalization of the insurgency in the sense that you had all of these different insurgencies going on at the same time with their own political local leaders. And the elections ended up not being able to reconcile all of those different interests. And because the international community had pulled out, There was no one really there to counterbalance some of that and to provide some leadership and some leverage because the international community is used to going into a country and being able to say, hi, we have like 10 million or $100 million to offer you. Now listen to all of our good ideas. And people in those countries listen because they've got $100 million. Well, 
in Libya, they clear a billion dollars a month in oil revenue. So you have to come with good ideas, not just come with money and then expect to be treated with great respect because you're used to it as a Westerner. And there's an arrogance and a, and a certain condescension that comes with that. The sort of the third factor is the internationalization, because then all of a sudden all the neighbors of Libya and Egypt being one of the key ones began to start meddling in Libya. And so not only did the international community not play a positive role, it then played a negative role. So left to its own devices, Libya split into two larger power centers. And maybe you can explain a little bit the two warring factions on the broadest level and then who supported whom. We often hear about three regions in, in Libya, but really the east-west divide is probably one of the most pronounced. And if it wasn't as pronounced, it has become pronounced because of the last 10 years. And so it's crucial to understand how that plays out, because without looking at a way of linking those two sides together, there's really no way of ever progressing. And so they basically end up having each having a de facto government. Now, in the end, the one in Tripoli was UN-backed. The one in the east, which was run by Haftar. Haftar is a former general in Gaddafi's military who rose to power in the east and is often described as the head of the Libyan National Army. It is not an army and it is not national and it's not even completely Libyan anymore. He's in charge of a bunch of armed groups. Some of the most fundamentalist Salafist groups in all of Libya are part of his secular coalition fighting jihadists. Like, just to give you a notion of like, the complexity of Libya, that it only makes sense if you look at it from really, really far away and use very terrible labels. But as soon as you start to dig a little bit, it, it has all of this nuance and complexity. But just to summarize, and it's a bit of an oversimplification, you had this competing two power structures. And to call them governments is basically to overstate what either one of them were. You had two centers of power and a bunch of political, military, social, and economic interest aligned with them. What we have seen in the last few months is uh, pretty miraculous, frankly. Um, you have seen since January of this year a coherent and a unified executive, both sides agreeing for a new process for how a joint unified government would form. But how do we get from Haftar almost taking all of Tripoli to what we're seeing now. So as I was saying, you had these two power centers. And then in 2019, just before the Libyan mechanism that was going to be used to redesign elections, this was in April um, 2019, just before it was about to meet in Tripoli, Haftar in the east decided that they would attack Tripoli, backed by Egypt, backed by UAE, backed even to some extent by the French, which is often missed in the analysis there was a real chance he was going to take over Tripoli. And he would have been the Qaddafi light, I think, based on most analysis. And it looked like he was going to win and accomplish that until Turkey intervened. And in a matter of weeks, because of uh, drone strategies and the air wars, very unique type of military tactics, which the Middle East Institute published an amazing report on, they were able to push them back and defeat them. And that happened in June 2020, And that was the main turning point for why we are where we are today. Libya has been called a test for what EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has termed the geopolitical European Commission. Has Europe failed that test? We're going to find out. So they failed it in 2012. 
by pulling everybody out. The question becomes now with this unique moment where the two sides have agreed and the election for the prime minister designate and the head of the council was agreed to by everyone. And even Haftar basically has said explicitly that he acknowledges this process. We have a moment, the best moment I would say, at least in the five years, if not longer, is the European Union going to pile in help, money, and people on the ground in Tripoli to try to help support what is about to happen? And the question if its members actually agree on a Libya policy. Because, for example, I read from a German think tanker, Wolfram Lache, who delivers a damning indictment of European Libya policy, in particular, the French and German policy. He says the French have been a spoiler and the Germans a spectator in Libya. Do you agree with that assessment? I absolutely agree with that assessment um, because the French basically picked one side. They picked Haftar, probably the least democratic figure you could have picked of all the leaders in, in Libya. There are some historical reasons for that. And then Germany just watched. And so Europe just watched. Now, what is so interesting is, is that this is Libya. I mean, hundreds of kilometers away is Greece and for some of the islands. I mean, it is not far. It is literally the sort of southern border of Europe. This is not some random country in the middle of, you know, some far-flung place. There's, there's, a, there's, I think it's 1,800 kilometers on the other side of the Riviera. It's just as beautiful, by the way. And this is the doorstep of Europe. If they can't get this right, I mean, it's akin to Bosnia. And I, I think we saw this commitment to Bosnia. We saw the, the, the troops that went in. And it's really hard sometimes not to see sort of racial overtones to this, that, you know, the Bosnians were white and we understood them. They were Europeans, but these people, they're different somehow. You know, it, it, this is where we hear these terms like, you know, tribal and things, very dangerous terms and these sort of tribal people. This is just basic racism playing out again, instead of neo-Orientalism playing out. Thank you. And then you described what a unique moment in time this is now with the unity government tasked to lead Libya to elections scheduled for December. Based on your research into conflict dynamics and your field experience supporting peace talks, what would you say are the chances of success? What are the roadblocks ahead for peace in Libya? How do civil wars end if they do? <laughs> you want me to keep my answer to two minutes? <laughs> There's a number of different parts to that. So let's, let's deal with the first one. I think this is a unique moment. I think that a number of factors have come together to really create this moment. I think the defeat of Haftar in June is incredibly important. So we now have what often is called this hurting stalemate so that all sides realize that there is no military way forward. And I think that until now has not been clear. The second one is, is that Libyans are tired. Libyans are fed up. And so I think that there is this moment of real fear from the leaders that there will be a backlash from the people and a second uprising, frankly, against them, partly because they realize that all the infrastructure that allows them to get all this money from oil is beginning to degrade. And if investment does not go in, all the taps are going to dry up very quickly. Um, and so I think there is a moment that all sides realize something needs to be done. And I think it is the last best chance for Libya moving forward. So the last part of your question is, what are the chances of success? This is obviously the most difficult thing. And I think the likelihood of success, we don't know at this point, because there are a number of factors that are yet to play out, um, that when they play out, we will know. One is the election today of whether the full cabinet will be brought into power. If it does, that really does bode well for, because you have people from the East and the West in that body that's making that vote. And so if Europe commits to this properly, not just with words, but with deeds, If the Libyans 
are at the stage I think that they are, which is that they are tired and want a way forward. And if the external partners see, and this is the Turkey and, and Egypt and UAE, and see more benefit in a stable, functioning Libyan state, then we will have success. That's a lot of ifs. Exactly. If two of those three work, we might have it. But if one of those three works, then it will fail. And then we will have a failed state in Libya. At Europe's doorsteps, you will have a country that isn't a country anymore. And I think that a lot of, when we look at migration, we look at all these issues, a lot of that will come back to haunt Europe in the future. My very last question is about reading recommendations. What is the best article you read recently? So in the spirit of ethnographic research and the spirit of, of what is it like to actually see inside the inner workings of armed groups, there is probably the most amazing article that I've ever seen written on insurgency and specifically on Syria, but I think in general. And it's how to start a battalion in five easy lessons. And it's actually in the London Review of Books. And it is an Iraqi journalist basically accompanying someone starting a battalion in the middle of the Syrian. And just ha watching this guy argue with a few battalion leaders as the, you know, to get his cousins to come join him and them kind of whining and crying about it. And just the sort of like the absolute opposite of what you would imagine for how most of these groups form, but it's there. And it really gives you the feel for how different people from the Gulf states are funding individuals to start groups. And it really gives you a, a sense of the complexity in a really beautifully written way. And then the other one I would say is Janet Lewis's new book, How Insurgencies Begin. Um, and it is an amazing book and really starts to dig at inception because almost all political science is built on a couple databases. And those databases dramatically understate the number of groups that fail. And so we would argue, and she's someone who I work with quite closely, that actually most of political science is missing a lot on inception because we study only the groups that survive. And they are a fraction of the groups that actually start up. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month. <laughs>